Good morning. We showed that uh, short um, spoken word film at um, our Tuesday youth track um, with our youth um, just a few weeks ago. We are doing um, a series um, where we're encouraging them to think about how God can use them on their front line, um, the place where they spend most of their time. Um, but at the very beginning, we wanted them to realize that actually it's all about Jesus, which I think the film really picks up. Um, but it also reminded me of the first, one of the first lines that Richard used when he introduced Matthew's gospel at the beginning of the series. And he said, Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus. Now, I completely agree with that. But hopefully you spotted the line in the film. And with this being Pentecost Sunday, I also want to um, say I think it's all about the Holy Spirit. And it's also all about God the Father. And I think sometimes we forget this is a trinity. Um, this is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we were in the Eastern churches, Pentecost would be as big as Christmas and as big as Easter. Um, and sometimes I think we need a little bit more razzmatazz when it comes to Pentecost. Because, of course, everything that Jesus, God the Son, does is in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And God the Son only becomes real to us in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. So the passage we're looking at today is a really short, it's a very tiny passage from Matthew's Gospel. And it's actually a summary of chapters 5 to 9. And I want us to be thinking um, about this passage, but also in the light of the fact that it's Pentecost Sunday today. So a very, very quick look at the last bit of Matthew's Gospel. If you turn to chapter 9, so that you're sort of prepared, um, if we look first of all, though, at Matthew chapter 4, So start off with Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be flicking between that and chapter 9, verse 23. And it just says, this is the introduction to chapters 5 to 9, and it just says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. So that's Matthew's introduction. And then he talks in chapters 5 to 7, um, about the things that Jesus taught. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he gives a selection of miracles that Jesus has been doing. He's been healing, raising the dead, exorcisms, calming storm. And you've, we've heard about those in previous weeks um, from John and from Jez looking at Jesus' teaching, looking at Jesus' healing. And so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. And if you look at verse 35, this is then the summary so we've seen the introduction, we've had the teaching and healing, and this is the summary bit. And verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, I love Matthew's throwaway comment here. And you read it in the earlier chapters, in chapter 4. Jesus healed every disease and sickness. And I just like to imagine what it must have looked like when Jesus was literally physically walking the earth. Perhaps sickness was almost wiped out. No wonder the crowds flocked to him. If you had a sick relative, you'd be desperate to get to see Jesus. 
and you wouldn't miss this chance. But there was something more. Jesus' teaching, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, his teaching was not the sort of teaching that the people had been used to. It made them sit up and take notice. Jesus' teaching about God's kingdom was nothing like they'd heard before. Now, he wasn't throwing out Old Testament teaching, but he was challenging them to live it properly and deeply and not just coated with a religious frosting. And if you read through chapters 5 to 7, you'll realize that what Jesus was teaching was completely radical. It was so different to the sort of teaching that the religious leaders were giving, and the religious leaders knew it too. While the crowds were becoming increasingly excited about Jesus, their leaders were becoming increasingly hostile to him, to the point of accusing him of working for the devil instead. So if you look back a verse, chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees, who are some of the religious leaders of the day, said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Or as the message puts it, it says, he's probably made a pact with the devil. And this is the mad, bad God scenario that C.S. Lewis wrote about that some of you will be familiar with. Now, no one would listen if the leader suggested that Jesus was mad. The evidence of his good works and his miracles would never convince them of that. So if the leaders didn't denounce him as bad or satanic, they would have to admit who Jesus actually was, and they weren't going to do that. They had other agendas. Their view of God's kingdom was completely different to what Jesus was presenting. And John's gospel gives us a bit of an idea. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They just didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus. The leaders didn't understand his mission. Their vision of God's kingdom was only about them and their nation. It was just too small. Jesus' vision and his mission was much bigger. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of attending uh, Sarah Mullally's installation as the 133rd Bishop of London. And one phrase that she used has pursued me all week long. She spoke about how she'd always been challenged to be subversive for Christ, and that she intended to continue doing so in her role as bishop not just as the first female Bishop of London, but also because she was a follower of Christ. And those words about being subversive for Christ have been echoing around in my head and my ears all week long. And I think it's a challenge for all of us who say that we love and follow Jesus. Because Jesus, his message was subversive to the core. And if we want to emulate him, then that's what we have to be too. Jesus' kingdom is subversive. Jesus was available for all who would come to him. Yes, he went to the respectable people in the synagogues, and we read that he went to the people in the towns who may have been wealthy. They needed him too. But most of the time, he spent, spent time with the ordinary people in the villages, the crowds who followed him, and the people on the edge of society. His ministry was the opposite to the world's teaching. 
He taught people to love their enemies, not to build treasure on earth, to live for God's kingdom first and foremost. And he also healed them physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He touched and he healed the lepers who lived outside the city walls, who were classed as unclean and untouchable. He healed the servant of a Gentile centurion, someone else who was also not really allowed to be part of the community of God. He forgave sins, something that only God could do. He brought back the dead to life, proving that even he had the power, even over death, the greatest enemy. This wasn't an ordinary message. At its core, the way Jesus lived and taught was subversive. So no wonder the crowds have been following him with growing interest. They've seen in something in him that's really special. They've been astonished at his teaching. They've seen his miracles. But now, we're going to read, they become the object of his concern. So if you look at verse 36 in Matthew 9, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus sees the people as harassed or confused and helpless, like sheep lying listlessly around with no shepherd to get them moving or giving them direction. Now, in the Old Testament, sheep and shepherds were often used for God and for his people. But it was also an image that was used to represent the people and their human leaders. And these people should have had shepherds directing them, leaders who are pointing them to the truth, helping them in their faith, revealing God to them. And yet, the very leaders appointed to them didn't understand God's kingdom and they couldn't even spot God walking around in their midst. They even confused him with the devil. And Jesus' compassion for the people is intense. Other versions say his heart went out or his heart broke. And in English, we don't have a single word to describe it. It's a complex word which means sympathy, but it also requires a response. Jesus knew that God's chosen people had no one helping them to find their way to him. And if Israel couldn't find God, what would be the hope for the rest of the world? Because Israel's role was meant to be to be there as a beacon and to show the nations who God was. But their own leaders couldn't even identify him. So Jesus sees that the people are leaderless, both in a human sense and in a spiritual sense too. So Jesus has a plan. And this is the response part of his compassion. He asks his disciples to do something unseen, but yet powerful and subversive. And he asks them to pray. He sees the people without leaders, without guides, without understanding. And so he asks for people to pray in others who will lead and guide people to the truth. It's like an undercover mission. It's bringing in the true king's kingdom. 
And so for a few minutes, I just want us to think about these two elements of this passage. Firstly, the compassion of Jesus, and secondly, his command to us to pray. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And John's gospel tells us that God's primary motivation is his love, because at the heart of the universe is a beating heart of love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus loved these people. He longed for them to be healed, for them to come to know the truth, to find their reason for being, their reason for living, to understand the what am I here for question that we all ask ourselves. And Jesus saw potential He saw that there were people who were searching and they were ready to know the answers. People that needed to know the answers. So here is our first challenge and the first response that Jesus asked of us. He asked us to respond to his love, to his call. Now some of us may have responded to Jesus when we were children or as teenagers and some of us perhaps later on in life. Perhaps some of us are still confused, even harassed, perhaps unsure who we're meant to be following. Unsure whether we've responded to the Good Shepherd. But Jesus does want us to respond. There is a point in our lives when we do need to recognize him as the one true shepherd. Jesus doesn't want us wandering about, lost during our lives. He has a deep compassion for us and he calls us by name. And if this is you this morning, and you know Jesus has been calling you, perhaps for some time, then I'd really encourage you to respond to him this morning, to allow Jesus to love you, to be your guide, to be your shepherd, to be your leader. And at the end of the service, ask someone to pray for you. Use the prayer step space, which is still set up, but also tell someone Because actually, starting to follow Jesus is the most important thing that we ever choose to do in our lives. And then we come to what Jesus asks of us next, once we've responded to him as his disciples. And in verse 37, it says, He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus asks us to pray, not go, not immediately anyway. He asks us to pray for others to join us. Now, when we were praying this week for our five, for thy kingdom come, did you see yourself as being subversive? Did you see yourself as being radical, as being challenging, prepared to pray, stand up for something different, to pray for people's lives to be changed, to pray for a new kingdom. Praying is joining in with God's conversation, his mission, finding out what God's plan is, hearing what he wants. And it's a different plan to the plan of the world, whose agenda, like the agenda of the leaders back then, is actually very small. And if we start without praying, we won't know God's plan. 
and we're also likely to feel completely overwhelmed with the task. The pain of those around us, the disease, the sickness, the trauma, the number of people living without knowing God. So Jesus asks us to pray for others to help, and we need to pray with God's eyes and God's heart, and we can only do this with the Holy Spirit helping us. God's kingdom is for the whole world, not just for the nation of Israel, not just for the church. His plan is that we draw others to him from all nations and all sections of society. And I think back at the beginning of this um, series, Richard looked at that list of people, and in the list there were women, um, Gentile women, women from dubious backgrounds, there were wise men from distant lands, there was a Gentile Roman soldier, people with all sorts of disabilities and medical conditions, all of these people would have been excluded from worship with the people of God. But yet, in Matthew's Gospel, here they are. They're named along, alongside Jewish officials and people in local synagogues. And Jesus asks us to be involved with this, but he asks us to start by praying. And sometimes when we pray, we might be the answer to our own prayers. I don't know about you, but when I've had a bit of a moan or pray about things at work, sometimes I'm the one that I find is the one that's meant to be doing something about it. And in the next verse, at the beginning of chapter 10, it says, Jesus says, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus' ministry expands here, and actually the disciples do seem to be the answer to their own prayers. However, it's really important to note that Jesus' appeal is not firstly for us to go and do something, but to pray. Because I think God usually has a much bigger plan than the one that we would design. Now, when my youngest daughter, Emily, started at school age four, and I have checked, and she's fine about me using this example, but she knew no one in her class. And so we sat down and we prayed that God would give her one friend. And at the end of the day, she came home and she said, Mummy, God didn't just give me one friend. He gave me lots of friends. And God often reminds me of this, reminds me of this story, that we ask for so little, but actually God wants to give us so much more than we can possibly dream of. So Jesus started by asking his disciples to pray for more workers. He needed to tell them to think bigger, to realize they couldn't do the job alone. They needed more than the 12 of them. He needed to make sure they knew it wasn't just about them. And look around this morning, and look at the church worldwide, and look at the number of people following Jesus. Those disciples must have prayed. But we're not to get lazy or complacent. Jesus still reminds us that we need to ask for more. So prayer is key, but the Holy Spirit is key. And as we pray, the Holy Spirit brings Jesus' love and compassion. The Holy Spirit will help us rely on God. The Holy Spirit will help us to rely on God and to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love in the way that Jesus loved. We need to see as Jesus saw and feel as Jesus felt so that we can live as he lived. 
God's love and compassion must always be the basis for whatever we do in the name of the Father. And this is where we rely on the Holy Spirit. Because I don't know about you, but I run out of love and compassion very quickly. I'm not naturally blessed with a lot of patience. And I know that without God's resources and the Holy Spirit living within me, I would get very impatient very quickly. I might follow, I might read the Bible, I might follow Jesus' suggestions, but actually I think I'd be tempted to give up very quickly. But, God's, but Jesus' name means God to the rescue. It's God's rescue of the world. It's not mine. It's God's design, God's plan, and God's kingdom. And we don't try and emulate him in our own strength. So God graciously comes and lives within us in the form of his Holy Spirit to be his hands and his feet in the world, to act with his love and compassion, to see the things that he sees, to see the needs which break his heart and the people who need rescuing. So what are we praying for and who are we praying for? During the last 10 days of Thy Kingdom Come prayer initiative, we were encouraged to pray for five people to come to know Jesus. Maybe some of your prayers were answered. Maybe some of those friends have become Christians. They've come to know Jesus. But as I finish, I want to encourage you to keep on praying. Keep praying for those five. Keep praying for more. And if, like me, you need some help, there are some amazing prayer resources out there. There are some amazing prayer apps. Thy Kingdom Come website has got some really good ideas on it. And if you need help by getting together with others, then find a prayer partner or a small group. And do come and ask us if you want some ideas or help with that. And if you want to pray with anyone this morning about responding to Jesus, whether it's a decision to follow him for the first time or a recommitment to follow him or to take up the challenge to pray, then please come and ask a prayer now while we're worshipping um, or at the end of the service. So we're going to take a few moments just to be quiet and then we're going to respond in some songs.